Alright. So today we want to start on uh, the, ne- the, uh, the first part of, of understanding the Bible, how to study the Bible, its observation. So the last several weeks we've been, we looked at first how we got our Bible, two weeks on that, and then we looked at four weeks of overview of interpretation, how that works. Now we want to look at these next three steps. This is how we hear from God and understand His Word and then uh, apply it to our lives. And this first step is called observation. The importance of understanding what God has said is critical because, as we saw last week in James 1.22, that we need to be uh, students of the Word of God, not hearers only, so that we don't delude ourselves. There's a possibility a real possibility, especially with our sin nature, that we can become self-deceived, where we can take our pet doctrinal issues, even well-meaning doctrinal issues, and hold to them so tightly that we're not willing to accept what the Scriptures have to say. So we want to be able to hear the Scriptures. We want to make sure that what what we believe is true. We want to um, be checking what we we understand against the Scriptures. And so it starts with good hearing. And good hearing starts with first observation, second interpretation, and third then application. That's the applying part. So we hear from God's Word and make sure that we understand what it means and then we apply it to our lives. So for the next two weeks, we'll look at observation. Nathaniel Shaler was a, a dean of the scientific school at Harvard in the early 20. 20th century, and he recalled a time when he had begun his coursework. He was a young student enrolled in scientific school of natural history, and he entered into the laboratory of uh, a professor by the name of Agassiz. He was a famous scientist from Europe. And the professor asked him a few questions about why he was there, and what his plans were, and if he wished to study any specific branch of natural history. And so the young student, Nathaniel, replied that he wished to be well-grounded in all the departments of zoology and to devote himself especially to insects. So the professor asked, well, when do you want to begin? Nathaniel replied, well, I want to start now. And so the professor grabbed from the shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol, and he said, here, take this fish and look at it. We call it a hemulin, and after a while I'll come and ask you what you've seen from looking at it. And with that, with that, the professor left. But in a moment, he returned to give instructions on how to care for the object that he had. He said to Nathaniel, no man is fit to be a naturalist who does not know how to take care of specimens. And so Nathaniel was to keep the fish before himself in a tin tray and occasionally moisten the surface with alcohol from the jar, always taking care to replace the stopper tightly. So for Nathaniel, gazing at a fish did not commend itself to passionate entomologist uh, work. And so, in ten minutes after looking at the fish, he had seen all that he needed to see. And he started in search of the professor who had left the building. When Nathaniel returned to the lab and he found his specimen still laying there, but now it was all dry, starting to get dry. And so he dashed the fluid over the fish um, in order to resuscitate it from its fainting spell. And he looked with anxiety for return of the normal sloppy appearance that it once had. And after the excitement was over, nothing else was to be done done except for him to look at it some more. And so he gazed at 
his mute companion, the fish. A half hour passed, an hour passed, another hour. The fish looked loathsome. He turned it over and around, looked at its face. He looked at it from behind, below, above, sideways, at three-quarters view. He was in despair. At an early hour, he concluded it was time for lunch. And so, with great relief, he carefully replaced the fish back in the jar, and for an hour he was free. When he returned, he found out that the professor had been back, but had gone and would not return for another several hours. And so he reluctantly grabbed the hideous fish again from the jar and put it on the the tin plate and looked at it again. The professor would not allow him to use a magnifying glass. Uh, He only could use his two hands, his two eyes, and the fish. That was it. He pushed his fingers down its throat, see how sharp its teeth were, and began to cut the scales into different rows until he was convinced that that was nonsense. And then... An exciting thought hit him. I'll draw the fish. With surprise, he began to discover new features as he was drawing it. And just then the professor returned and said, Very good. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I'm glad to notice, too, that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. Well, tell me what the fish is like. And so Nathaniel um, gave a brief rehearsal of the structure of the parts of the fish and he didn't really know how to name them, the fringed gill, arches and move, moves, um, the pores of the head, the fleshly lips, lidless eyes, lateral line, the, the spinous fine, forked tail, compressed and arched body. When he had finished, the professor waited as if expecting more, and then with disappointment said, you haven't looked very carefully. You haven't even seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish fish itself. So look again. Look again. And he left Nathaniel to his misery. Nathaniel was annoyed and mortified. Still more of this wretched fish. How can this be? But now he was determined to see. He was determined to discover what his professor thought that he was missing. And so he began to discover new things as he looked at it some more. And he saw how right the professor was in his criticism. The afternoon passed quickly, and then towards its close, the professor inquired, Did you see it yet? Nathaniel said, No, I'm certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. And the professor said, Well, this is the next best thing than actually seeing what, what it is that you ought to be seeing. The professor said, I don't want to hear any more now. Put away your fish. Go home. Perhaps you'll be ready with an answer in the morning. I'll I'll examine you then before you look at the fish. So in other words, you've already done all your looking. Go home, think about it, come back, and before you look at the fish, you're going to give me a a report. This was not very exciting for Nathaniel. Not only must Nathaniel think of the fish all night studying without the object before him, but also he has to give an account of it the next day. And he didn't feel like he had a very good memory. In the morning, the professor greeted him Here, we have a professor who seems just as concerned as Nathaniel that he see the fish for himself. And Nathaniel asked, Do you perhaps mean that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs? And the professor said, Yes, that's it. Nathaniel said, What should I do next? And the professor said, Look at your fish again. Then he left him alone. In a little more than an hour, he returned and heard Nathaniel's new catalog. And the professor said, This is good, very good. But that's not all. Go on. 
And so for three long days, he placed that fish before Nathanael's eyes, forbidding him to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look, 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 was his repeated injunction. The fourth day, a second fish of the same group was placed beside the first, and Nathanael was told to point out the resemblances and the differences between the two. Another fish and another followed until the entire family lay before him, and the whole legion, and a whole legion of jars covered the table and the surrounding shelves. The whole group of hemulans was thus brought into view, and whether engaged upon the dissection of the bony framework or the description of the various parts, the professor's training in the method of observing facts and their orderly arrangement was ever accomplished by the urgent exhortation not to be content with them. He, he would say to Nathaniel, facts are stupid things until brought into connection with some general law. And as Nathaniel thought back on that time in his life, he says, this was the best entomological lesson I ever had and a lesson whose influence was extended to the details of every subsequent study. It was a legacy that the professor has left with me as he has left it to many others, a legacy of inestimable value. It was the week that Nathaniel Shaler learned how to see. Nathaniel learned an important lesson that, that he could read all sorts of books on fish, but he would never learn as much as if he intently gazed at the fish himself for long periods of uninterrupted time. And this analogy makes helps to make my point, which you've probably already figured out, and that is that the best way, in my view, to see what a given text is, is to spend long periods of time looking intently at it. And we may look at the text and see that the words haven't changed, right? I, I already looked at it. I already evaluated what I think is there. And so what value is there for me just to look at it again? Right? It, it seems mundane, maybe pointless, maybe a waste of time. But I can, sure, uh, can assure you that God has given you eyes to see and a mind to understand. And one of the best ways that you can study the Scripture is simply to look without the help of any other aids. And so I want to teach you how to do that. I would suggest that, that your ability to observe is one of the most helpful tools that you can possibly have in studying the Bible. Um, when we go to the Ivory Coast, um, Dan asked, Dan and uh, Pastor Conan asked that that I um, teach some of the pastors and, and church leaders on uh, three different topics, giving, prayer, and music. And when I first heard that, I'm thinking, well, that doesn't really, uh, that those don't really go together. They're kind of uh, disconnected in many ways. I mean, we can certainly find some similarities, but um, uh, just some issues that have popped up within their circumstances, they feel like those three topics are important that they understand. So um, after thinking about it for a while and how I would present uh, a talk on each of these three, I decided maybe the best way to do it is to give some sort of overall framework for studying a topic of Scripture and then use that framework to, to, to um, teach them in each of these other three areas so that they can learn to do this themselves. Because, you know, in our setting, we do have lots of uh, resources, external resources outside of the Scriptures, right? We have 
Lots of people, we, we can pull up a sermon almost on any passage in the Scripture, really we can, on any passage of Scripture, from solid biblical teachers and listen to them. We can, we can easily pull up a commentary or a study Bible um, that are very accessible and free on our phone or, or wherever we are, really. And um, so we have all these resources, but, but in the Ivory Coast, they don't have those kinds of resources. And so are they going to um, come to a dry well when they're trying to study the Scriptures? Or is it possible that they could actually do this kind of um, process, this process of basic observation without the help of external aids and be able to see properly? Um, now, I'm going to suggest that later on in the process, in fact, when we get to interpretation, the dissection part, that we do need external resources as best as we can. Um, but at this early stage, it's best to, to, to look at the naked text um, and, and um, just use our eyes. So, uh, there's great value in this process. And, and again, this is going to take some work. Nathaniel would have probably liked it if he could just have a big stack of books and then looked at all the Hemulin sections in those books and see what kind of things he could learn about them and then just recite them back to the professor. But the professor realized that he's going to have more long-term help and, and, more, and he'll have deeper discoveries than he would have if he just looks at someone else's work. And um, so I'm going to argue that there's going to be a time for that, to look at the books. But for now, we want to just look at at the object, which is the text, all by itself. All right, there are two types of interpreters of the Bible, and this is uh, something that I'm drawing from my um, class I'm preaching from Dr. Dorn, and this has to do more with those who are looking to teach, that often what, what the people, when they come to the Scriptures, they either want to be a manufacturer of the text or they want to be a miner of the text. So a manufacturer is one who digs down uh, or who's not looking so much to dig but actually trying to figure out how he can manufacture some material so that he has something to say. So, for example, you know, like we were talking on, on Wednesday night with First Corinthians 7, 1, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Many a youth pastor has used that verse and senior pastors as well to try to preach against um, boys and girls or teenage boys and teenage girls touching each other. But that's not what the text means. Okay, that, that's actually the question that the Corinthians had for, for Paul. They're saying, should we follow this rubric, you know, that, that, that a man shouldn't touch a woman? And, and Paul's saying, that's not the point. It's, it's not whether or not you should touch a woman. In fact, that was, I think was a euphemism for sexual intimacy. And so... Um, so the point is, is, you know, are we just looking for something to say? Because if we are, there's all sorts of verses. We can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. Any preachers, you know, that do that, right? I mean, they just, they come up with an idea and then they take a, a passage of Scripture and they force that text to mean what they want it to say. But that's a manufacturer. Okay, a miner is one who's looking to do the research, do the Nathaniel kind of research, that they're preoccupied not so much with what am I going to say about the text, but what does the text mean? What does the text say? What can I discover? It's the work of mining diamonds rather than making diamonds. It's the work of investigation. And so what I'm going to suggest is that good interpretation begins with good observation. 
And good observation begins with a proper mindset. Now, um, this process of setting all the resources aside, except for the Scriptures, setting all those resources aside when we go to study a text of Scripture is what I think is the best, best approach. However, there, there is an article that just came out this week by Dr. Snowberger from, our, uh, from Detroit Seminary. And he actually argues that when a preacher goes to the text, he ought to begin with the, with the sources, with the, with the commentaries. So if you want to look at that, that's on um, the DBTS blog, the Detroit Seminary blog. And uh, it's a little bit more technical in nature to read, but I think you get the main idea. And so that would be an alternate approach to studying the Scriptures from what I'm suggesting. But I, but I think this one is a good one. It's one that, that my pastor uses. My pastor used when, when I was under his teaching and still does. And one that he taught me how to use, and I've found it to be very helpful. All right. Any questions so far? Okay, so let's consider these questions that, that we want to address when we look at observation and then the second part, which is interpretation or dissection. The goal of observation is to just simply find out what is the author saying? What is the author saying? So we, we just want to look at the text and what is he saying? I'm not trying to dig out all the application of this point. How does this apply to my life? How does this connect to all the other parts of Scripture? But what does he say in this text? And then the goal of interpretation, the second stage in this process of hearing, is what does the author mean? What does the author mean? So trying to find out the meaning of the text. Um, what is God trying to, to say to me? And then what does God mean? All right, so let's consider these um, steps of observation. Number one, choose the right chunk. That's a theological word. Okay, Hebrew. Come from the Hebrew, um, maybe. Uh, choose the right chunk. I, I mentioned in earlier that earlier class that the Bible is broken up into logical units. Okay, we have the the largest logical units are the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then inside of each of those testaments, you have a smaller unit of a book or letter, and then inside of those books, you have chapters. Inside those chapters, you have paragraphs. Inside those paragraphs, you have sentences. Inside those sentences, you have clauses or phrases, and inside of those, you have words. Okay, so every part of the scripture is set within a larger context. So when we go to study a section, it's good for us to make sure that we're studying the right chunk. So we need to figure out how we can make a, a proper break-off between one idea and another idea. So if we're just trying to do a sentence, that's pretty easy. You know, Most of the time, the Greek sentence translates pretty closely to our English sentence. So you can just take a sentence in your English Bible and look at that. Uh, or paragraphs, which are, you know, in the, a lot of the English translators mark them off by either indentation or with a bold um, verse number at the beginning of the paragraph. But have you ever had a, a Hershey bar that you're sharing with somebody, and when they broke it off, they broke it off not where it's, you know, not in the grooves. They broke it off right in the middle of one of the, the tiny little bars in there. It's just so frustrating. Break it off in the groove. That's what it's meant for. 
Okay, so that that's kind of a silly illustration, but sometimes that's what happens when people come to the text of Scripture. They break it off in the wrong place, and they wonder why they can't figure out what the author's saying. So try to break it off where the author has made those grooves for us, and um, and so so determine the right chunk. Number two, look, look, look. Okay, this doesn't mean just scan your eyes over them. It means read. And what I would encourage you to do is to read through the passage, as I've mentioned before, read through the passage that you're studying ten times. So do you want to understand what God says on a particular chunk of a passage? Then read through it ten times. Um, and, you know, most books you can read through in less than an hour. Um, obviously, if you get into some of the Old Testament books, they're going to take a long time. So even if you're studying a whole book, it's not too much of a challenge to have to read through it um, ten times. But but most of the time we're looking at smaller sections like a paragraph in the New Testament. And so we can very easily do that ten times. And what that does is it, it uses this method that the professor was teaching to to Nathaniel. And as you're reading, you're simply observing, just like Nathaniel did with this fish. And, and so observe with a pencil. Observe with a pencil. Okay, this is when he kind of, Nathaniel kind of moved to the next level, right? He, he had looked at it for hours, took a break, came back, and then he said, you know what, now I'm going to start drawing the fish. And that's when the professor looked over his shoulder and said, yes, that's great. You're starting to learn here that, that you can, you can, um, you, you can uh, take in a lot more facts if you, if you uh, just write down some observations. So as you see different things, just write them down. Maybe you would, you know, it doesn't have to be a pencil. Obviously, you can use a computer. But um, you might not know how all those initial observations fit together or what they mean in light of the larger purpose. But, but that's okay. Just simply, this step is look. Make observations. Write those observations down. Number three, find the weight of the text. Find the weight of the text. Number two is observe with a pencil. Oh. So the weight of the text. This is um, this is going to depend what kind of genre that you're looking at. Okay, this, again, this is why important that we consider that second principle on on page one all texts are not alike so based on whether you're using a narrative or you're using epistolary literature which is just a letter using logical uh, prose style of writing then that's going to determine how you understand the passage but but you need to find the weight of the text and and this shows up often by finding a pivotal text so for example in, in mark chapter nine let's turn there Mark chapter 9. The disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. In verses 33 through 50. And so we want to see where this text hinges. Where Where is the pivot point of this text? Where it turns from kind of a, a problem that's addressed to a solution. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them what we were discussing on the way. But they kept silent, for on the way they discussed which one was the greatest. Sitting down, he called to the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and, and servant of all. Verse 37, 
whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. So the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest and, and Jesus responds to their their um, their argument with, you know, if you want to be first, then you have to be the greatest servant. If you want to be first, you, you need... It's not about getting your place in the future kingdom and making sure that you're sitting next to the, the Father um, or myself on the throne, but, but rather that that uh, you are the greatest servant. So look for the pivotal text. Now, in um, in narratives, you'll find the weight of the text. You'll find the 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 most important part of the text usually when you find the conflict and the resolution. Okay, every good story has a conflict and a resolution. So think about the most exciting event that ever has happened in your life and and think about how you tell that story. You usually build up to the climax of that story, don't you? You don't want to give away the climax right away because that kind of helps the people to see uh, kind of the tension that you were feeling as that situation was happening. So maybe it is a, a note or a, a message from the doctor that you had cancer, right? Well you, well, you don't say that right away. You say... You know, these are some symptoms that I was having, having, and I went to the doctor, and then these things started happening and really started to get concerned when this happened, and then and then the climax hits kind of the most intense point when the doctor comes in and says, you have cancer, you have four weeks to live, or something like that. You know, and then, then it resolves. How did that all resolve? How did that get taken care of? So, in a narrative, you have an arc of a story, right? starts out with a conflict of some kind, like, how is this conflict going to be resolved? And then it reaches to some kind of a, where the conflict is most intense and a climax, and then it resolves. So, whenever, this is, this is the same thing that is true when you're reading a book, when you're reading a narrative or some kind of a novel or watching a movie. Okay, there's going to be some kind of conflict that is set up, and then it's going to come to a climax and it's going to resolve. So, if you can find out what that is, that's kind of the pivot point for a narrative. And the same thing happens in the Scriptures. So um, let's just uh, think of some examples here. First from, from perhaps our lives or a movie or a book that we've, we've seen, but, and then from the Scriptures. Okay. So it's usually the conflict leads to a question like, are the good guys going to be killed? Or, you know, is the horse that has three broken legs going to win the Kentucky Derby. You know, they set this character up like, wow, we're re- we really feel, feel for this guy, but he's really doing well, and maybe he could really win this race. Or, you know, is Rocky Balboa going to win against the Russian giant? You know, that's the, kind of the question that comes out of the conflict. How are we going to solve the Cold War? You know, Rocky's going to do it by beating the Russian. Um, and so throughout the throughout the story, that answer... Is that, that question is being answered, and and then it comes to a climax, and finally is answered, and then the, then it resolves. So, let's think about it from um, some some scriptural examples of narratives. See if we can think of what the conflict is. How about in Genesis chapter three, where Eve sinned? What it, where does the initial conflict take place? Okay, we're not going to turn there, but just think about the story in your head. Where is the initial conflict when Adam and Eve sinned? The story of Adam and Eve sinning. Okay, Satan, the serpent, coming to tempt Eve. There's the conflict. 
The question that immediately comes up for us is what? Is she going to give in? Now, we already know the answer because we've heard the story since the time we were young. So, but, but still, go through this process. What's the conflict? What's the question that comes up in my mind if I'm reading this for the first time? And then what's the climax? She sins, right? That's the, the conflict is most intense when she sins and her husband who is with her sins also. And then the resolution is what? Okay, they're kicked out of the garden. All three of them are, are um, judged for their sin. And, um, and um, she, knows that, that what sh- she knows what evil is like now from the inside she, because she's given into the sin he has as well. How about 1 Samuel 17? David and Goliath. What's the conflict of the story? Okay, Goliath is standing there and defying the armies of the living God. That, that phrase is used multiple times in the text. What's the question that comes up in our mind? Okay, is anybody going to do anything? Or is Goliath going to keep getting away with this? Is Goliath going to continue to be able to defy the armies of the living God? The climax, the, con- well, the conflict most intense, and then the climax is what? David slays Goliath. And then the resolution is? The resolution. How does the whole thing get resolved after the fact? Okay, that's part of it. What's that? The enemies flee and Israel goes after him. God's name is effectively vindicated because he's the one who worked through. So they're not going to defy God. Um, How about, here's a little bit more difficult one. Let's think about the narrative of the entire Bible. What's the? What do you think the initial conflict is in the scriptures? Just if you just think about the whole narrative of the Bible, where the arc of the Bible is going, and how it resolves. What's the initial conflict? Man's sin. And that that leads to a question, which is what? How can a man who is a sinner be reconciled to a holy God? Right? I can't earn God's favor with my own righteousness. I have sinned, so how can I be reconciled to God? What's the climax? Right, exactly. Christ dying on the cross. The whole Old Testament is pointing to it, you see? And then Christ dies on the cross, and it resolves by how? Okay, His resurrection, and remember, it's at the resolution helps to, the climax and the resolution help to answer the question, that we were initially asking, which is how can a man be made right before God? Or how can a a man be declared right before God? Jesus' death, and the result is that all who trust in Him will be saved, will be reconciled to God. And and then you have kind of the end, Revelation, with God punishing all those, or judging all those who defy Him, who who reject Him, and and, uh, bringing into His eternal presence those who accept Him. All right, let's do one more. Um, You're in Mark, so turn to chapter 3. Conflict, uh, verse 1. Oh, this is what we're looking for first is a conflict, so I'll read the story and then you, you see if you can point it out for me. He entered again into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man, 
with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to him, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So there's our chunk. Okay, and it's a paragraph chunk. We want to look at it, and obviously if we have time, we would look at it multiple times. Um, and then we want to find the weight of the text. So what is the conflict of the story here in verses 1 through 6? Okay, so you have a man with a withered hand, and Jesus is there on the Sabbath, and they know how Jesus liked to push the envelope effectively. And so the question that rises, arises in our minds as we're reading it is what? Will he do it? Sometimes it's just as simple as that. Jesus, Jesus um, is there on the Sabbath with the man who has a withered hand. Question in our mind is, will he do it? And the climax is, he does it. Verse 5, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and the hand was restored. And the resolution is, verse 6, right? The Pharisees wanted to kill him. All right, so... Uh, hopefully that's not overkill for you. Some that's pretty straightforward. Others um, of you that might be new, but but I think it's helpful in recognizing this that that if we're going to understand properly a narrative, we need to understand its weight. And often that is found. Most often it's found in the climax and the resolution. Now in prose, um, like in Paul's epistles, John's epistles, uh, Peter's, and so on, uh, the way the text often hangs on the commands. You're not looking for um, a conflict and a resolution because they're not telling stories. They're, they're using logical arguments. So in logical arguments, the, one of the key things to look for is commands. So in Ephesians 5, verse 19, sing to one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs and make uh, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Or Hebrews 12, 14, be at peace with all men. So you have a lot of things going on around the text, but look, look uh, importantly, or um, look closely at the commands when you're in the epistles. Hebrews 12, 1, run with, run with patience, the race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus. All right. Uh, number four, look for repeated words, phrases, or ideas. And this is um, effective in both narratives and in prose. Okay, really, in any type of literature you have, look for repeated words, phrases, or ideas. So if we were to go to John chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about the fact that I am the bread of life and he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood and so on, um, what we would find in that passage is that the word bread is used most often. The word bread, flesh, eats, those those words are used most most often. And so write these words down and write the, you know, if you want to be really... Um, really um, a detailed then write down the, the verse that you found it in as well. And that leads to our next point, which is number five, find the subject of the passage. Find the subject of the passage. Now, I'm not talking about the subject of the sentence. I'm talking about the topic. What is the topic that the author is talking about? So, this is, um, this is usually pretty straightforward. Um, sometimes the subject or the topic is very explicit. Other times it's implicit. So the, the example I've used before is, you know, if you came up 
to a group of guys talking about, um, you know, you heard the words Red Wings and Detroit and, you know, Red Wings and Detroit and, and, and Detroit and score and goal and hockey and Red Wings and you would understand what they're talking about. What's the subject of their conversation even if you didn't understand how all those things fit together. You would understand that what they're talking about is the Detroit, the Detroit Red Wings. So sometimes it's explicit in the text is the same way. Sometimes those repeated ideas help us to see exactly what the author is talking about, but other times it's more implicit. So let me give you an example from turning out the Weather Channel and you hear the words Gulf Coast, high winds, down to power lines, boarded up houses, emergency crews available, National Weather Service. What's the newscaster talking about? A hurricane. And yet, in the time that you turned on the news to the end of that, those words that I just listed, you never heard the word hurricane, but you figured it out. Why? Because it's implicitly there, right? You understand based on all the other things that are being talked about what is there. And so um, sometimes in the scriptures you have to do that. But most of the time the subject matter will be explicit. It will be repeated in the words. That's why step four is critical. Find the repeated words in the text. Because repetition is a valid way to emphasize a point. Repetition is a valid way to emphasize a point. Okay? The authors of Scripture do it all the time. When God is repeating things over and over, it ought to get us to, like when we were listening to our parents as a child, when they repeat the same thing over and over again, I might want to listen up. Or when I'm sitting in class, right, and my teacher keeps saying the same thing, this is due on Friday. They're trying to get them to understand and to grasp this point. This is critical that you get this. And so I think the same thing is happening when God repeats things. So number four and five are are really important. Understanding understanding what the author is saying. Number six, find the complement of the passage. Find the complement. So you have a subject and a complement. The subject simply says, what the the text is saying, the complement is saying what the text is talking about. So, so you could have the topic of a hurricane on the news, but what are they saying about hurricanes? Okay, that's the complement. So, the to, the topic, you know, are they saying that hurricanes are good and it actually helps to clear out areas so that it, you know gives a, a new fresh start to a, a city? Is that what they're saying about it, or are they saying? that hurricanes are bad and they're very dangerous and they can cause people death and you want to avoid being in the in the area when they're going on, right? So you want to find out what they're saying. They could be saying all sorts of things, just like with the conversation that you might hear at work or wherever about the Red Wings. Well, what are they saying about the Red Wings? Are they saying the Red Wings are terrible? Are they saying that they're good? Are they saying that they need something or that they, they need to just close up shop or, or what? Um, so find out what the author is saying first, that's a subject, and then find out what the author is saying about that subject. What's he talking about? And, um, and then you'll be well on your way to understanding what the theme of a text is. Let me give you one last, um, one last step of observation that, that can help you. And this one's a little bit more difficult uh, to, to do, but if you, if you uh, work at it, then you can get good at it. All right, and it is to play Jeopardy with the passage. Play Jeopardy with the passage. So, Jeopardy is, you know, 
your answer comes in the form of a question. So what you want to do is to, to ask, what was the question that was trying to be answered in this text? What was the author, why did the author put this paragraph or this book in its place? What was he trying to answer? So, let's try to do that here for this class. What would, what would be the question that I have sought to answer this entire class period? Okay, how can, you underst- how can a person understand what the Bible is saying? Or how can we know what the author of Scripture is saying? Okay, um, and, and so in order to do that, it's helpful to do these first steps, to kind of hear the, come, some of the repeated ideas, find out what the subject of what's being said, the compliment, and then, and then you can work towards a, a Jeopardy kind of, of question. So let's, let's think about this um, in the book of Mark. Okay, so we'll make the book of Mark our chunk that we want to study. Um, in the first several chapters, you have the story, you have a story about Jesus and who he is, and they just came coming rapid fire about what kind of authority Jesus has. You have Jesus healing the demoniac, teaching with great authority, raising the dead, healing people with the word, healing people with the touch, walking on water, feeding thousands of people. And each of these stories have a different question that they answer, right? Who can cast out demons? Who can teach with such authority? Who can raise the dead? Who can feed 5,000? So those are the types of questions that are being asked and answered but if we want to look at the book as a whole, what's the larger question that's being asked in the Gospel of Mark? And it appears that in Mark's Gospel, um, Mark is leading up to Peter's confession in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ. So each of these stories has its own topic, its own subject and complement, its own theme. But each of those stories fit into a larger narrative, just like we did with the whole Bible. It fits into a larger narrative. And from that, we see that, 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 that Jesus is the Christ, the living God. Jesus is the one who pays for sins. He is the, the one who came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's actually from Luke's Gospel. So um, Jesus is the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom from many, Mark chapter 10. And so what is the question that Mark is trying to answer, it seems to be that he's answering, uh, who is this man Jesus? Right? Who is he? How is it that he can cast out demons? How is it that he can do these miracles? How can he teach with authority? Well, it's because he is the Christ, the Son of God. And so, um, the way that we find those kinds of things out is not by going to the bookshelf and grabbing our favorite commentary or going to the, 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 the sermon um, you know, the, the sermon archives of our favorite preacher and finding out what they have to say about it is by looking like Nathaniel Shaler did, just looking, looking with the pencil, looking at the text. It helps us to see what the point of the author is. I can assure you that you will find much more from this process than you would if you just grabbed a bunch of books and just regurgitated what, what they have to say. Okay? There's a time for that to make sure that we're, we're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks. But there's a time for that where we, we want to check what we're understanding, make sure that it's um, in line with what the Holy Spirit has convinced other people to say. So we want to have good commentaries that, that help us in that direction. 
because there's a possibility that we could be flawed in our our sight, right? We could have some, um, we we could overlook some things and so on. So uh, I I commend this this process to you. This is what um, again my my pastor Pastor Doran taught me and how to uh, to look at the scriptures. And this is the passage, or this is the process that I use every time that I study a passage of scripture. The very first step that I do usually takes me, for, you know, one or two hours. You might be thinking, well, wait a second, I'm never going to be in a place where I'm preaching in front of a congregation or something like that. So why, why is this important? Well, I think it goes back to the Acts 17 model that we have for us and the First Timothy 2:15 that we need to study to show ourselves approved. And the Acts 17 is the Bereans study the scriptures daily to make sure that what Paul was saying was true. So, in other words, how can you test what I am saying against what is true? If you don't have a method by which you can see. Okay, if you're simply just always accepting what either I have to say or what other authors have to say, and you're never able to do it for yourself, then, then, um, then how can you check what I have to say as being true? Um, you know, you could come up to me and say, well, this author says this, so you must be wrong. Well, uh, most likely I'm going to respond by saying, what does the Bible say, right? It doesn't matter what another author says. It doesn't matter what I say, ultimately. It matters what the Scriptures say. So, um, so I think we each have a responsibility to guard what has been entrusted to us. And so, to some extent, we ought to be able to do this. All right, any questions? All right, I'm going to give you an assignment. I almost never do this, but it's on the back. Okay, it is to study this short passage. It's, it's um, six verses. And this could take you less than 30 minutes to do this whole thing. I mean, we, we went through some passages and, and were able to do this in a short period of time. You can do this, and I would encourage you to do this. Okay, write down your answers and come back with them for next time. 1 Thessalonians 4:13 to 18. Choose the right chunk. We've already done that. Read it ten times with a pencil. Write down your observations there. That might not be enough room, so grab another sheet of paper. Find the weight of the text. So this is a prose section, so find out what the commands are. Um, are there any commands that we must obey? That's usually where the, the weight of the text in a prose hangs. So what is Paul trying to get at? He's not just simply saying things to say things. He's trying to get them to obey something. So what, is, what are the commands there? And then what are the repeated words, phrases, or ideas? So just look, look through the text. What, what is repeated there? What's the topic of the passage? What's the author talking about? What's the compliment? And then what's the question that he's trying to answer? That will all help you lead to the theme, which we'll talk about more next week. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for um, the eyes that you've given us to see spiritually that that we were able to simply grasp your truths by gazing at your word, not um, in an osmosis type of way where it just kind of sinks into our soul or something just because our eyes are open and looking at the page, but because we're using um, we're using just the basic laws of human language and how people communicate. And I pray that you'd help us uh, to be convinced about how we can be sure about what your word says and get better at doing this for ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.